my name is uh, Chris Gaynor. Uh, I'm a part of uh, the pastoral team at a church in Raleigh, North Carolina called The Summit. Uh, but uh, it is a great privilege for me to be here today uh, to share with you uh, from God's Word. Uh, my wife and I have honestly enjoyed uh, the warmth. Uh, we got on the plane on Friday, and I think it was about 40 degrees, and we stepped off here, and it was somewhere north of 75, and uh, we, were hap- we were happy creatures, happy to see the sunshine. We haven't been out on the beach yet. I'm hoping this afternoon we'll be able to get our toes in the sand and enjoy that a little bit, uh, but we're thankful to be here. You know, I, have never been, I haven't been on the beach in Miami yet, but I'm confident that I'm going to see the same thing I see every time I go to the beach. I see a whole bunch of women who have a whole lot less on than they should have on in public, and I'm probably going to see some old man with a set of headphones on his head and a long stick out of his right hand walking around, sweeping the sand, looking for buried treasure. Anybody seen either one of those things at the beach? Okay, did, did these people participate with you, Moochie, when you preach? Okay, let me, let me explain something to you, okay? I'm, I'm accustomed to people talking to me. So when you answer my questions, I know you're getting it. If you don't answer my questions, I'm going to have to preach even longer to make sure that you get it. So if you're hoping to get to the buffet before 1 o'clock, you better start talking to me, all right? Anybody seen that, anybody seen that uh, metal detector on the beach? Okay, it was an easy question. It wasn't hard, all right? You know what, I always, I, I wonder, but I've never seen one of those guys stop and dig anything up. I don't know if they ever find anything or not. I, I don't know if they just hoping they're going to find something or as if they actually do find a buried treasure. Now, I don't know if you've got one of those. You don't look like uh, metal detecting kind of people, whatever they look like, I don't know. I don't really have that, but you know what I'm sure of? I'm sure every single person in this room at one time or another has dreamed or fantasized about coming into a windfall. Maybe you think about digging up a treasure somewhere, or maybe you wonder sometime if some distant relative somewhere that you don't know about is going to die, and you're going to get a letter in the mail telling telling you you're the beneficiary of a grand multi-million dollar uh, inheritance. Maybe, Maybe you just dream of playing the lottery and winning it big. I don't know, but here's what I'm confident of. Most of us, at one time or another, dream about the possibility of gaining a great treasure. The parables that Muchi read to you earlier are Jesus' explanation, really, of what a great treasure really is and how you gain that treasure. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Matthew chapter 13 verse 44. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hone in on this one verse, and we're going to dig into what Jesus is saying here. Matthew 13, 44. If you've got a copy of the scriptures with you, I would encourage you to follow along. If you've got something to take notes on, I think the Lord has given me some things that are worth remembering, so I'd encourage you to write them down. Matthew 13, 44, the greatest treasure. Jesus said this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. 
central truths. In fact, Matthew chapter 13 is a series of parables that Jesus told. Parables about the value of the kingdom. And even Jesus' disciples needed him to explain them sometimes. At first reading, this parable might seem a little strange to us, but a little context might be helpful. In Jesus' day, there were no banks. There weren't safety deposit boxes. There weren't uh, institutional ways or places to secure your treasure. In fact, money was, was, not, uh, was not a commodity like it is today. So a person's treasure or their wealth might be in many different forms. It could be jewels or precious metals or even heirlooms that had been passed down from one generation to another. And it wasn't uncommon for them to hide their valuables, to try to find a secure place to store those, maybe even in their house, or, or some might, as this story suggests, bury those somewhere on their property in order to keep them safe. In fact, I read uh, this week about a Staten Island couple who noticed what looked like a metal box buried between a couple of trees in their backyard when they moved into their new home, but they just kind of wrote it off. In fact, the, the, the husband said, I just thought it was probably a, an electrical box uh, buried in the backyard. When they got, finally got around to digging it up, they discovered that what he thought was an electrical box was actually a rusty old safe. And what they found inside that rusty old safe was a treasure trove. Hundreds of dollars in cash, bags of jewelry, diamonds, gold, jade. In fact, the total value of what they found in that safe was somewhere north of $50,000. But there was also a piece of paper in the safe with an address, and the address happened to be one of their neighbors. So they walked down the street and knocked on the door and asked a simple question. Have you ever been robbed? And they learned that these folks had had a burglary about eight years prior to this moment, and what the burglars took was a safe. Imagine the shock when the owners got back the treasure that they never thought they'd see again. And that might make you wonder why the treasure hunter in Jesus' story didn't do the same thing. Wouldn't that have been the ethical thing to do? To find the owners of the treasure and give them back their lost fortune? But you need to remember that these stories uh, were something Jesus told to communicate a central truth. Don't, don't get sidetracked on some of the details. Look for the main point. Listen, this isn't a parable about what to do if you find a wad of $100 bills in the Target parking lot. The parable is about the value of the kingdom. Here's the central truth that Jesus is holding up. Write this down. Gaining the kingdom of God is worth losing everything else. Gaining the kingdom of God is worth losing everything else. It's worth giving up everything else. Willfully, willfully surrendering everything. The kingdom of God is worth open hands. But what does that mean, gaining the kingdom? 
When Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, he's talking about the rule and reign of God. He's talking about salvation, the work of restoring us to a right relationship with our creator through Jesus Christ. He's talking about you and I coming under under the authority of Jesus, back into a right relationship with him. Colossians 1.13 says it this way, For he, Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, to be in the kingdom is to be forgiven. It's to be redeemed. It's to be reconciled and restored. Listen to me, this parable is a glorious picture of salvation. We rejected the rule and reign of God in our lives, and we went looking for another king, a king who would do it our way, or a king who would offer us more while requiring less of us. But our treason brought us slavery instead of freedom. In our sin, we were taken captive, not by a benevolent king, but by an evil regime whose control over us is devastating. His intent, his his express purpose is to devour and to destroy us, not to bless us and do us good. But Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, paid the ransom for us in order to rescue us from captivity. He willingly offers us forgiveness and redemption. He invites us to an eternity of abiding in relationship under the rule and reign of our Savior. But please don't mistake this. That rescue comes with a requirement. That rescue requires repentance. We must surrender our hold on all that we have in order to embrace the rule and reign of Jesus in our lives. We must surrender our selfish and sinful pursuits in order to come under the authority and the rule and the reign of Jesus. But listen to me, that requirement of surrender is not cruel. It is not cruel. It is unbelievably kind. The one who would rule over us is the very one who gave up his life to rescue us. Listen to me. A king who would die for you is a king you can trust to care for you. A God who would orchestrate your redemption is a God that you can depend on to work all things together for your good. A Savior who would not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but would empty himself and become obedient unto death is a Savior who can, believed when, who can be believed when he says the value of being restored to the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. When you find it, when you recognize its worth, you will joyfully release your grasp on everything else and abandon every other pursuit for the sake of Christ. Gaining Jesus is worth losing everything else. Gaining Jesus is worth losing everything else. Can I, can I ask you this? When I say that, when those words come out of my mouth, when they enter your ear, do you instinctively think about what you would gain 
or what you would lose? Do you think about what you would receive in Jesus or, or, are, you, or are you preoccupied with what you think it might cost you? In this parable that Jesus told, it is obvious that the value of the treasure was overwhelming to the one who found it. Look at the verse again. Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. P- picture this for just a moment. Try, try to get it in your mind. Try, try to imagine what it would look like. That This man is walking through a field. We don't know if he is looking for treasure or if he's just meandering along from one destination to another. But what we do know is, is that as he crosses that field, he stumbles onto a treasure. And immediately, he knows two things. Instantly, when he sees this treasure, he knows two things. The first is he knows that the value of what he has found is exponential. He knows it is massive. He knows it's precious. He knows it's of great worth. There's no question in his mind about the value of this treasure. But the second thing he knows is this. He has to have it. He has to have it. He knows instantly that he can't live. He can't go another day. He can't keep going in life as usual until he possesses this treasure. So priceless was this discovery that this man divested himself of everything he owned. Everything. Everything, everything of value, everything of nominal value, everything that contained uh, or had memories attached to it, he let go of everything. There's no indication that he tallied up the value of his belongings first. He didn't go home and sit down and imagine, well, wonder what this is worth and this and this. He didn't tally those up and then hold them against what he thought was the value of this treasure. There's not an ounce of hesitation or reluctance because he knows that the value of what he has found exceeds the value of what he has. So excessive, lavish, precious, priceless was this discovery that he divested himself of everything he owned. And as if his actions weren't stunning enough, Jesus tells us this, he did it joyfully. Listen, y'all, he wasn't crying. He wasn't moaning. He wasn't bemoaning what he was letting go of. He was captivated by the value of what he had found. Can I be honest with you this morning? And can I ask you to be honest with me? I'm not sure that characterizes our pursuit of Jesus today. I'm not sure that characterizes us. We, We believe Even those of us who've come to Jesus, we believe he has some value. Maybe even we think he's highly beneficial to us. But the notion of giving up everything for the sake of knowing him just seems a little excessive to us. Y'all, I'm not preaching to the world. I'm preaching to the church. Go home, go home and and look at your life and you'll discover that there are a multitude of things that you and I have placed in a value over the value of Jesus to us. And the idea that we would give it up joyfully just, frankly, seems impossible. 
But Jesus said that gaining him is worth losing everything else. Gaining Jesus is worth letting go of everything else. You must understand this morning that this is more a statement about what you gain than it is about what you lose or let go. We don't know if the man in Jesus' parable was wealthy or poor. We, we don't know if he had a great accumulation of wealth or if he lived in poverty. And it, it, because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what Jesus is saying is, listen, whether you've got a lot or a little, whether you have hope of a lot or hope of a little, gaining Jesus is worth giving up everything else. The only way that makes sense is when you and I begin to comprehend the value of knowing Christ. The value of being in the kingdom. The value that comes to us from being under His rule and His reign. The value that is ours when we know that we are accepted and loved and kept by Him. Is there excessive joy and a sense of reckless abandon when you think about what you gain in Christ? When you contemplate the value that comes to you by being a child of God, is there a sense of excessive joy and reckless abandon that floods your heart when you, when you begin to grasp what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God? Listen, for a lot of us, there's lingering grief about what following Christ will cost us now or what it might cost us in the future. We are scared to death, even as the people of God, of what God might ask of us. We're petrified of that. Some of us lay in bed at night and we, and, and we, we imagine what, what would happen if Jesus took this from me, if he asked this of me. What, 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 what would it be like? What, how would I survive if God called me to do this, if he, if he, if he took this from me? Listen, church, that's because we don't know. We don't know the value that Jesus is. We've lost sight of the treasure of knowing Jesus. But the Apostle Paul, he got it. He understood it. That's why he said in his letter to the Philippians, Philippians 3, 7, and the verses following, but whatever were gains to me, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have already lost all things. I consider them garbage, rubbish, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I, I Paul said, I want to know Christ. 
I want to know him. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Paul was driven by this insatiable appetite to know Jesus, to know Jesus in all of the benefits and to know Jesus in all of the costs. He wanted to know Christ. Why? Because he understood that knowing Jesus was of surpassing worth. Do you understand what Paul's saying here? He's saying that if you stack it all up, everything this life has to offer you, every accomplishment, every experience, every enjoyment, every pleasure, every possession, every relationship, stack them all up. Anything that you can think of that would be an asset to you, that would be of value to you, you put them in the asset. Everything that you and I put in the asset column, Paul says stack them all up. Everything to which you ascribe value and worth, Stack it up. And Paul says when you stack it up and you compare it to Christ, to knowing him, to walking with him, to being found in him, all those things aren't just less valuable. He says you move those things from the asset column to the loss column. They aren't gains, they're liabilities. They are, they are, they are obstructions to you and I gaining the joy that can only be found in Jesus. Jesus said it this way. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Our greatest problem is that we have undervalued Jesus and overvalued the things of the world. I'm not just telling you that's your problem. I'm telling you it's mine. On a regular basis, you and I undervalue Jesus. We undervalue being under his benevolent rule and reign. We undervalue being redeemed and reconciled and restored by him. We undervalue knowing him and experiencing what the scripture says is in his presence, his fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. We undervalue that and overvalue the things of the world. Quite simply... We, like every other generation that has preceded us, have violated the first commandment. You remember this? What's the first commandment? commandment? To love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength. Love God. Love God with every fiber of your being. God has commanded us to do that. He's not commanding an emotion from us. He's not instructing a a feeling from us. What God is commanding us in this first commandment is that he is calling us to put Jesus first in our lives. To treasure, to value, to esteem, to prize, to treasure, to honor, to savor, to worship, to adore, to glorify, to exalt him. Y'all, loving somebody isn't about what you feel about them. Loving loving someone is about what you choose. You choose honor. You choose choose to value them. You choose to cherish. 
My, my wife is less interested about how I feel about her and more interested about how I value and esteem and hold her in high regard. She, just does, she doesn't want to just be the flutter in my heart. She wants to be the first on my list. God isn't calling us to an emotion. He's calling us to a willful choice to choose Jesus above every other thing. To esteem, to value, to cherish, to treasure, to adore. To recognize that God is more valuable and more precious than anything else. And y'all, this is the first commandment. Because it's the one on which all of life hinges. Listen to me this morning. If you get this wrong, everything else will fall apart. Everything, every other pursuit will be unsatisfying. Every other foray will be, will be disastrous. When we get this wrong, everything falls apart. When anything becomes more valuable and more necessary to us in Jesus than Jesus, then listen, none of our thinking or reasoning will be right. Your value system will be turned upside down and you will pursue things that are fleeting and temporary and unsatisfying because you've, you've placed something above the value of knowing Jesus. Listen, this is the downward spiral that Paul was talking about in Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, Paul says, they neither glorified him as God nor gave him thanks. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Listen to me, church. What happened to the people that Paul is describing in Romans can and will happen to us when we don't choose to glorify God and give Him thanks. When we don't make much of who He is and what He's done. When we don't treasure His character and His work above every other thing. Our thinking will become futile and our hearts will become dark. Listen, listen, it says, although they knew God, they knew God. They knew him. They had some understanding of who he was. I don't know how complete it was, but they knew something of who God was. And it says they didn't value him. They didn't treasure him. They didn't love him. And we know that because they refused to glorify him and give him thanks, they didn't treasure him and his work in their lives. They had a bigger view of themselves or other things. They credited their success and their well-being or the possibility of that to their own work or to the work of others. And the results were devastating. The results were devastating because what happened is all their thinking became futile and their hearts were filled with foolishness and darkness. They weren't willing to give up anything for the sake of knowing God. But Jesus tells us in this parable that his own glory and goodness are worth sacrificing everything. What drove the treasure hunter in Jesus' parable is the same thing that, Paul, that compelled Paul. The, surpasses, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. How did he know that? 
How did Paul know that there was surpassing greatness in knowing Christ? Well, I'll tell you exactly why. Because Paul had tasted and seen that Jesus was good. I don't know about y'all, but I like to eat. I like to eat good food. In fact, uh, Friday night we had some delicious um, Cuban food. In fact, I wanted to make sure I didn't, I didn't miss, you know, ordering the right thing. I have a friend at home who's Cuban, and so I, I sent him the menu. And I said, tell me what to order. Last night we had some Haitian food. Y'all, y'all, I like to eat, but let me, take, let, me just, let me tell you one thing for sure. I don't take a little bitty taste of something that's good and say, oh, that was nice. No, no, when I taste it and I see it's good, a little taste demands another taste and another taste and another taste. Y'all, I devour the stuff because it's good. I can't get enough of it. I want to go back for more. We have this place at home. Uh, it's called Goodberries. It's frozen custard. Just really rich ice cream. Flavor of the day, every day. My favorite is Jamocha. I get Jamocha with chocolate chips and pecans. I get a jumbo size. <laughs> Y'all, I don't just take a little bite and say, oh, that's nice. No, I, I look on the calendar to see when Jamocha is the flavor of the day so I can go back and get another one. Y'all, I've tasted and I've seen that it's good and I want some more. Listen, Paul had tasted the goodness of God. He knew he was good, and he didn't want just a little taste. He didn't want to nibble. Paul wanted to devour Jesus, and it was worth whatever it cost him. Listen, he told the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1 this. Let's walk through this passage together. And I wish I had time to unpack this whole rich thing for you, but I'm going to hit the high spots, okay? Verse 15, Colossians 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Listen, Jesus came into our world to show us exactly what God was like. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Listen, y'all, that's what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus, God coming to be with us so we could know what he's like. What kind of God does that? He's, he is the image of the invisible God. Verse 16, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Listen to me, church. Jesus is the creator of all things, invisible and visible. I don't care what the scientists tell you. I don't care what the world tells you. Jesus is the creator. And let me tell you something, when you and I give up that territory, we have given up a great expression to us of the knowledge of God. The scriptures say, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth his handiwork. You can't take creation off the table and not lose greatly the revelation of God to you. I don't care whether it makes sense or not. I don't care whether the scientists can explain it or not. I can tell you that the Word of God says to me, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word created all that you and I see and feel and taste and touch. Psalm 104, 24 says this, How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Listen to me, he didn't just make what's visible to you, he made what is invisible. 
Listen, you, you need to grasp this this morning. He created you with the capacity and ability to enjoy his creation. He didn't just make what you can see. He made what is invisible to you, the capacity to enjoy what he created. Touch, taste, smell. He created all of those. Your capacity to enjoy music and art. He made you that way. The reason that you and I can find pleasure in intimacy is because He made us that way. I don't have enough time this morning to impact all of this for you. But look, don't miss this. The glory of Jesus is seen and felt in all that He created. Verse 17, he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Listen to me, church. He was here before you got here, and he will be here when you are gone. He was here when the earth was formless and void, and he will be here when it is utterly and completely destroyed and remade. He is before all things. He's after all things. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, and everything in between. But he didn't just make it all. He's holding it all together. Listen, everything in this universe is, is working the way it's working in a way that makes our existence on this planet possible because Jesus is holding it all together. You might not have thought about that. You might not have thought about the fact that if the earth just shifted a, a little bit more toward the sun, we would all be burned up. You, you might not have thought of, about the intricacies of creation that cause life on earth to be maintained. But listen to me, God just didn't create it that way. He is sustaining it and keeping it that way by his powerful word, the scripture tells us. And you, you this morning, seated in this room, listen to me, church, your heart is beating because God created it to beat, but also because he gives to you beat after beat and breath after breath. You're here this morning believing because he is sustaining you. You're not believing in him because of your determination and your grit and your, your, your commitment to Jesus. You are here in faith because Jesus gives you faith. You are sustained in all ways by him. Verse 18, and he's the head of the body. The church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's so important. Paul said it twice. It's all there in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Listen to me, church. We are reconciled to God because Jesus is our peace. He is our defense in a courtroom where we stand condemned and guilty unto death. We are alive because he died in our place and rose from the grave. And his resurrection guarantees that there's a resurrection coming from us. Listen to me. Jesus is glorious. He's wonderful. He's supreme. He's first. He's preeminent. He is more valuable than anything you can ever imagine. And gaining him is worth losing everything else. Why don't we live like that? 
I'll tell you, we don't treasure, we don't know the treasure that Jesus is because we aren't looking at him. We're looking at everything else. Do you recognize how quickly your heart is drawn to worldly things? Y'all, we live in Raleigh. We live in a nice house. It's not overly extravagant, but it's nice. It's safe. It's well-decorated and maintained by my wife. It's fine. But you know what? There was something about riding through Golden Beach the last couple of days. And look at houses the size of hotels. And my little heart, my little heart, my little heart, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Most of you, most of you have everything you need to cover your body. But there's nothing like a walk through the mall that won't stir up covetousness and desire in you like nobody's business. Most of us should be satisfied with what we have, with the goodness of God in our lives. But y'all, there's something about looking that stirs up longing and desire in us. So what do we do? What do we do if we're going to live the way Jesus said we should? Believing that gaining Jesus is worth losing everything else. I'm going to give you three points. They are not revolutionary. They are not new. They are not hip. But they are truth. The first is we pray. We pray. Can I just tell you this? You can't make yourself want the right things. You, you can't make yourself not desire the things of the earth. You can't turn it on and off like a switch. I'm 60 years old and I haven't accomplished that yet. Most of you are about half my age. So here's the good news. Stop trying. Pray. Turn to Jesus. And ask to see him. Ask God to give you a vision of himself that eclipses your vision of everything else. Moses cried out to God, show me your glory. Show me your glory, Moses said. What did God do? Mm -mm, not now. Nope. No, God showed it to him. God spoke to him. God came to him. David said, one thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Ask. Ask for a vision of Jesus. Ask for a heart that's turned toward Jesus. Ask for a desire and a longing and a hunger and thirst that drives you to seek Jesus. I love Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1.17. He said, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know Him better. Church, let me tell you something. Jesus said, if you ask anything according to my will, you can be confident that you have what you ask. You want to pray a prayer you know God will answer? Pray that one. Ask God to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so you can know Him, so you can know the value that's in Him. So that you can be driven to seek and search Him with all your heart. 
So we pray. That's the first thing we do. We pray. The second thing is this. We repent. Y'all, if we're going to walk toward Jesus, if we're going to walk with him, we're going to have to leave some stuff behind. We're going to have to turn our backs on some things that we have believed all our lives would bring pleasure and joy to us. We're going to have to give up some sinful pursuit. You may be even asked to give up some good things for the sake of a better thing. But you got to repent. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And our God for, and to our God for he will freely pardon. Listen to me church. We don't just need to repent of our actions. We need to repent of our attitudes and our way of thinking. That means we stop running after the pleasure of the month. But it also means we turned our hearts and minds in a different direction. Listen, we are repeatedly instructed in the Bible to set our minds and our hearts on things above, not on earthly things. Listen to me. That won't just happen to you. It's a deliberate choice you make. It's the focus of your mind and heart. It's what, it's what the Scripture says. We take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. You're going to have to arrest some of your thinking, some of your desires. You're going to have to tell yourself, no. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. That just means tell yourself, no, no. I got a 10 and a 12-year-old boy. If I could get them to understand that, what life would be so much better. You can't do everything you feel. You can't do everything you want. And listen to me, that is contrary to our culture. That's not hate. For you, for God to say to you, that's wrong. It will end in destruction and death is not hate. It's love. Diamond's telling us last night about Noah running through a parking lot with an oncoming car, shouting at your kids in a parking lot is not hate. It's love. I love my kids a whole bunch. Stop! Listen to me. Listen to me, church. Sometimes sometimes no is the most loving word you can hear. Stop. Turn around. Quit. But it also means that we got to set our minds and hearts on things above. I love the prayer of Psalm 119, 36 and 37. The psalm said, turn my hearts toward your statutes. And not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes. God, turn my eyes away from worthless things and preserve my life according to your word. Listen, we pray and we repent because we have some responsibility if we expect, expect there to be a change in our thinking and desires. I'm going to break this down in practical terms. Some of y'all need to disconnect cable. You need to stop watching HGTV. I'm going to be straight with you. It doesn't stir up anything in you but desire and covetousness and a lack of gratitude for what you have. Tell me I'm not telling the truth. Listen to me. I got, I got plenty. I've got plenty. But you put me in a setting where I can see somebody that's got more and guess what I want? More. Stop looking at it. 
Quit walking through the store just to see what's new and fashionable. Get off Facebook. I call it fake book. Stop coveting everybody else's fake life. Listen, my friends, my friends post. I think I've been in your house. I ain't never seen it look like that. I've eaten at your table. You have never put a plate in front of me that looked like that. And I know your children, they don't act like that. Your scrolling through Facebook does not stir up love for Jesus. It stirs up coveting and desire. So stop. Repent. Y'all, it's practical. I'm not throwing out stuff you can't do. If you want to know the value of gaining Jesus, it's going to cost you something. The third thing is this. We gaze at Jesus in his word. Listen, if you want to make Jesus the supreme treasure of your life, then you absolutely must spend some time looking at him. You got to stop reading the Bible like an instruction manual and read it for what it is, the revelation of God to his people. John Piper said this, you can't save her what you don't see. You can't cherish and desire and love and enjoy and treasure what you're not aware of. If we don't desire and cherish and enjoy and savor and treasure Christ, we will not commend him as magnificent in what we feel and say and do. Christ is most magnified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And we cannot daily be satisfied in the depths of our souls in Christ if we don't see him and savor him. My point, Piper says, is that that can only happen by steady meditation on the word of God in the Bible. Listen to me. Today's revelation won't be enough for tomorrow. You need to look again tomorrow. And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. You stir up desire and longing and value for Jesus by looking at Him, by staring at Him, by gazing on His beauty, by drinking deeply of the water of living life. Living water. The writer of Hebrews said this in the past. God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And church, the whole Bible, the whole thing is the revelation of Jesus. So read it. Soak in it. Saturate yourself in it. And let it drive you to this truth. Gaining Jesus is worth losing everything else. I grew up in church. My daddy was a preacher. And I can't tell you how many times I heard this song, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again 
and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I hear you. I hear you. And I believe. But I am going to ask you, God, to help me with my unbelief. God, help me with the vestiges of belief in me that something else will satisfy and bring me life and joy. God, help me to cling to the truth that gaining Jesus is worth losing everything else. God, help my brothers and sisters in this place to give themselves wholly to pursuing the greatest treasure, knowing you. We ask for it. We ask for it, God, in Jesus' name, believing, believing that you long to hear and answer this prayer. It's in his name we pray. Amen.